My name is Victoria Carr. And my name is Olatz Monpeo. And you're listening to the Researcher's Code podcast, where we interview women who are pushing the boundaries of tech in scientific research. this episode I'm going solo and covering for Olatz while she's away. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Alana Wispy. Alana is the CEO of Oxford Quantum Circuits, a startup company in Oxford developing quantum computing. Before joining Oxford Quantum Circuits, Alana worked in a number of startups and prior to this completed a PhD in quantum computing at Royal Holloway University and the National Physics Laboratory. Welcome so you are currently the CEO of Oxford Quantum Circuits on developing, developing a pioneering technology called quantum computing. So could you describe what this is? What is quantum computing? Quantum computing is an entirely new type of computer. So it's not just a computer that's, say, smaller or better or faster than like regular computers. It works off completely different like fundamental principles so this means that um, it can make an entirely new type of information processing possible Um, some of the applications that we're really excited about which might be interesting to you as well actually is around simulation of molecular matter so you can use quantum computers to simulate atoms at their smallest scale because inherently they're quantum systems themselves Um, So that can have some really cool applications around like drug discovery, for example, or developing new catalysts or fertilizer solutions. Equally, um, the other side of it, which is a bit more commonly known, is around like data processing. So being able to perform like huge complex calculations um, in shorter timescales. So for recommendation systems or optimization problems. Okay, so... How would you describe what a quantum computer looks like compared to, say, my laptop? Yeah. Um, So we tend to say that quantum computing is kind of where classical computing was um, when you still had computers that took up entire rooms. Yeah, so we're kind of more at a similar stage to that. Uh, So any type of quantum computer is still, like, a room. Um, In terms of actually describing what it looks like, there are kind of a number of ways in which you can build a quantum computer so it would depend what kind of quantum computer you were looking at um, so if you were say talking about um, a computer that was made by trapping ions for example you're looking at large laser systems with really cool vacuum tubes and large-scale electronics and manipulation of, of, of lasers like with very high um, high accuracy um, which isn't a field that I work in so we do superconducting circuits Um, And again, it's like pretty much still the size of a room and we have a fridge, which is hanging in the center ominously. It's very, um, it's it's a a fancy fridge. It can get you to about 30 millikelvin, um, which is pretty cold. Colder than space. That's minus something like minus 273 Celsius. Yeah, I remember some some physics. (laughs) Good numbers. (laughs) Yeah, basically, um, and that's a tool that we use to, to operate our quantum devices in because uh, they need to be in, in you know very for us it needs to be low either way it needs to be low energy so for us that's in mm. that way very cold so what kind of applications 
kind of real real life applications is quantum computing being used for right now right now so right now the state of play is that we can do things that are like scientifically or academically interesting but we're probably not at the point where it's like changing the commercial world right so this is the gap that we're currently bridging so right now you've got people working on quantum algorithms that are looking at what they can do um, with the quantum computers that exist out there right now it's kind of important to note that where quantum computing is at right now is at a stage where um, and it's on the cusp so you know even by the time this goes out it might be different or if you're listening back it might be different Um, but right now you can simulate a quantum computer with a supercomputer to a certain scale. Um, So that's kind of the point which will change very soon, is we'll basically reach a quantum computer with a system requirement that means it's it's optimized or can outperform what you can do with, with a supercomputer. And that's the point that it becomes really powerful and really interesting and we're just on the cusp of that right now like everybody's saying any day now any day now Um, someone will make an announcement so so. watch this space cool so um do you foresee a future where quantum computing will be quite similar to now so it'll be kind of um like almost like cloud computing where people will just submit jobs to it or I guess because of the kind of environment that you have to put it in, it's perhaps not suitable for something like a portable laptop. So where do you see this technology going in the future? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, I don't foresee it being something that we're going to have like accessible like a laptop anytime soon, for sure. Um, in terms of what it will look like, um, yeah, there's a number of thought processes behind that. So the people that currently are developing state-of-the-art computers um, like IBM, Google, Rigetti, for example, they have cloud access um, to them. So they're encouraging people to access their computers through that cloud system. Um, Actually, when we talk to some of the potential future end users, they want deployable systems because they don't want to be sending their information through the cloud. So I think there's still, um, you know, it's a very rapidly evolving ecosystem and the market is still being defined. So people are still trying to understand what that will look like. But ultimately, it's like an entirely new tool in the toolbox. And deployability is something which is a hot topic right now. Okay, so we're going to go back to you. So you did a PhD in quantum computing. So you have quite an academic background. So now you're an entrepreneur and a CEO. So did you always have that leadership spirit growing up and wanting to start your own tech company? Or did this come later while you were an academic? first of all I'd question like what's leadership spirit mean like what is a leader um it's uh, a concept that's being challenged every day more and more and I'm really pleased to see that I would say I'm not a typical leader and I'm still trying to find my own leadership style but what I find um, and have always enjoyed is um creating things and taking something from ideation building it up, getting people excited about it, getting people involved, building up that team, like that synergy and getting it to a point where you've been able to then deliver something and and impact in a positive way, Um, like wider society or like people more in general. Um, I think that's what I've always had coupled with being the oldest child. Ah, fair enough. (laughs) You kind of get used to coercing people. So everyone looks up to you, that makes sense. So I guess maybe my wording of leadership spirit 
like you said, a bit debatable. So maybe a little bit more of an entrepreneurship spirit, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I think entrepreneurial spirit for sure. Like I've always wanted to get hands on, like graft and like work hard and challenge things. Um, network um I've always been networking and I never realized that's what it was <laughs> I kind of came out of academia okay. and was like oh like so you're a natural networker then yeah okay. yeah but nice. you know I didn't really realize that was a thing yeah like when I was at, at school I was kind of friends with everyone and able to like connect people from different departments and stuff and then like I didn't really realize that was a thing <laughs> Yeah, maybe if we don't label that as networking, people will probably be more comfortable doing it because I think networking has like a lot of negative connotations. Yeah. As a, as an academic, it can be quite frightening going to massive conference room and then trying to strike mm. up that first conversation. Mm. And then people are like, oh, that's networking. It's like, not really. No. And networking like, is like going to the pub or going for a social, you know, it's yeah. like lots of different meanings to it. Precisely. So. And like, I've personally, I found conferences and stuff like that so intimidating as a PhD student because it's like forced it's like a forced environment where it's like oh I have to talk to all these incredible people and they might know more than me and like I find you know I really found that really hard but um, building relationships naturally and learning to kind of almost exploit them in ways that was mutually beneficial was something that you know I was I was doing throughout my PhD like I had uh, connections with people in different departments with within uh, the National Physical Laboratory where I did my PhD and everyone was in upper management trying to say well oh we want this horizontal collaboration like how did you do it and I was like well I sat down with them at lunch. So I want to go back a bit so you started mm-hmm. um, you studied an undergraduate degree mm-hmm. for an undergraduate degree in physics at Royal Holloway. Mm-hmm. So physics with a minor in music. Oh yeah with a minor in music that's uh-huh. interesting I'll get to that in okay. a second so <laughs> First of all, what made you interested in studying physics at university? Mm. Yeah. Um, so I actually always wanted to do music. <laughs> so we'll start there. Oh, okay. Fair enough. And then um, kind of had not such a great experience at college with music. Um, and I found physics much more engaging. Like I really enjoyed the problem solving element of it. Um, I didn't like fall in love with it at that point at all. It was just like, this is really interesting. It's something that challenges me. And I know that I'll get a job out of it at the end. So it seems like a sensible thing to do. Um, so that's why I did it in the end. Okay. So you were put off when you were at college um, doing music properly at university. And I don't, I guess there's probably no course that does music with a minor in physics. I don't think that exists. I don't think I'd have done it either. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. I did, um, at college, I did a very intense music course. It was a very very intense music course alongside my a-levels it was almost like music college um and doing those two things in parallel just you know unfortunately crazy (laughs) awesome so what what instruments do you play out of interest yeah uh the piano and the flute though i haven't played the flute for quite some time did you are you still continuing to play the piano and the flute i still play the piano yeah um, quite regularly it's like a massive de-stressor um, and I love that I've been able to keep it as a hobby. Yes. Um, I picked up the flute once and played it. And my husband said, never do that in this house again. It's far too loud, which I didn't realize. I didn't think it was I was going to say, it can be loud instrument. too. Is it quite the high pitched noise of a flute? It's yeah, it might have more... gone straight to like the super hardcore poulonk or something. <laughs> and like put him off it. But... Well, there we go. Piano is better than the flute. So anyone <laughs> listening and wants to start a musical instrument, learn the piano. <laughs> I would agree. I also play the piano, just saying. Oh, but great. Yeah, so I can, I can vouch <laughs> for that. Start doing duets after. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
then after you did your physics degree, you found an interest in quantum computing and you then embarked on a PhD at Royal Holloway and the National Physics Laboratory. Um, so how did you get into quantum computing during your physics degree? Yeah, I think, um, so Royal Holloway and is you know, where I did my undergraduate degree is, in, is a great uni for experimental physics. And it's not something as an undergrad I particularly appreciated at the time, but it's got a fantastic um, you know, department and a few fantastic individuals specifically working on quantum computing, not something I appreciated at all or expected was something I'd be involved in when I first um, applied. Um, and it was my supervisor there was kind of one of those standard stories where you have a very inspirational person um, who um, I have built a really good relationship with um, and he has a, a group that works on superconducting um, circuits and it was through talking to him I did my final year project with him um, and that was just my bachelor and then actually I um, you know finished with an undergraduate BSc and I went to London and got a job and was like I'll catch up with my old supervisor Phil buddy old pal and was like I can't wait to tell him I've got a job <laughs> and did that and he was like well Alani, I'm going to make you very unhappy because I'm going to offer you a PhD in uh, yeah in quantum computing so how long were you away from academia how long did you have this job it was for? literally just over the summer just over the summer yeah. you started. I didn't even start I accepted oh. the job offer I went to my supervisor my old supervisor just yeah. to catch up yeah and then, and then he said, well, you could do this PhD. Bearing in mind, I didn't have a master's. Cool. So the NPL, the National Physics Laboratory. Yeah. So that was kind of your industry arm of your PhD. Mm -hmm. um, so w what's it like? Is it, has it got quite like an academic environment or is there kind of more kind of practical aspects to it? Yeah, I mean, NPL is a really interesting place because it's the UK Centre for Metrology, right? So it is an industrial entity and it has a complicated relationship that I still don't quite fully understand with, with government. Um, but yeah, it's basically the UK National Standards Institute. So in some ways, it is like working in a large organisation. You know, it's got a lot of procedures. Um, it's got, a, you know, a board and management and all of that stuff in place. Um, but then within that, I was working within the quantum detection group, which was a lot more like um, an academic research laboratory, but just like an incredibly well-funded one. <laughs> so it was really neat. So what aspects of your PhD did you enjoy and which aspects did you not enjoy? Um, so I really enjoyed being hands-on. Like it was an experimental um, PhD and I really loved being in the lab, being hands-on, doing like menial stuff like making magnets out of wires <laughs> and soldering and stuff like that was really fun and therapeutic and that was really great. Um, I also loved owning a project and being entirely responsible for that um, and being able to learn such a diverse amount of stuff like from really practical um, yeah practical things all the way up to new programming languages and modeling and all of that stuff I really enjoyed the diversity there and being able to switch in and out of things and be like responsible for it all so you were doing like analysis and hardware stuff basically yeah yeah that's exactly. amazing that's and brilliant. you could switch up because you could be like in the lab one day but then you could be at a computer the other day yeah um, and like also I got to collaborate quite a lot so I got to travel quite a lot um, which was really fun as well 
So who did you collaborate? Where did you travel during your PhD? I spent a fair bit of time in Sweden um, uh-huh. at Chalmers, um, which, uh, again, has a very fantastic quantum department, incredible clean rooms. Um, so I got to spend some time very there. Very clean, I guess. Very clean, <laughs> very big, very well-maintained, um, incredibly high-spec equipment, like... It was really fun. So when you were making, so when you were making these devices, I guess that's what you were. You making devices during your PhD? Were you were you doing this all in a clean room? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the devices, I was yeah, I was building them myself in clean rooms, right? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously with the, a lot of support from yeah. the people around me, but yeah, it was great fun to learn how to do all of that stuff. So you're basically wearing like a boiler suit, like yeah, yeah. 24 hours, not 24 hours a day, but you're wearing a boiler <laughs> suit at least for like some part, big majority of your PhD, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So after your PhD, you worked in several startups, including a software development company. So what made you decide to work in industry after your PhD? Yeah. Um, so again, it was like one of those situations where I'd talked to some people and I found myself an internship. Um... And I was still writing my thesis. I just couldn't write my thesis on its own. I was going insane. Um, so I decided to do an internship on the side because that seemed sensible. And that got me into the startup world. Um, I really liked, again, being able to be responsible for like coming up with an idea and building it in different ways. And I was still able to, within a startup environment, do a lot of different things. Um, so I, th- I think I recognized that I could never be um, a cog in a wheel doing like one task um, and I really enjoyed the diversity that that kind of role brings um, and then when I got to the point that we had like a software product deployed and then I was literally talking to users that were using what something that like I had developed with a team you know it was like the idea I'd like taken it from a flow chart right the way through to like unit tests and implementation and, and that was really fun really rewarding to mm. see um you also get yeah just so much experience within startups that you wouldn't get within other places but you also and you still have like the graft and like the mental like there's a lot of similarities with academia and like it's a passion thing right like you do it because you're passionate about it it's not necessarily you do it because there's loads of money and like hopefully you hope there's going to be loads of money obviously in the future um but yeah so it kind of had the best things that I loved from my PhD in it but it didn't have some things I didn't like so much in it leading on from what you said about the kind of skills that you learned in your PhD so what particular skills from your PhD actually helped you become a more successful entrepreneur or be more su- successful um, employee in, in mm-hmm. the startup culture, do you think? Yeah, so I think like, to answer this quite simply, it's when you do a PhD, no problem becomes too big, right? You know you can solve anything. Like You come up with new challenges every single day and you face them and you know that you have the resources available to you to figure it out. And you can go and you can do it and it might take a day or it might take a week, but you know that how to solve any problem effectively that's what it teaches you Mm. um and a lot of determination and grit to get on with it um and being able to do that in an academic environment you can transfer that across and it's amazing how much how valuable that is and how far that can get you is just knowing that I don't know how to do this but that's okay I can learn and knowing that you have the tools available to learn and that you can do it yeah so what what aspects of academia did you not enjoy 
or you found different compared to a startup environment that you don't necessarily miss? Yeah, uh, the pace, to be honest. Um, you know, within um, startups, it's a lot more fast paced. You need to, you know, you're under a lot more pressure mm. to produce results. Um, and uh, that's something that I find and found a little bit frustrating within academia was, you know, everybody has these incredible ideas and wants to get them done, but quite often, unfortunately, because the, the framework more than anything, um, it can just be quite, quite slow. Um, so I found that quite, quite challenging. Um, I also found sometimes you could um, see things, exciting things started that would just disappear and not get finished. Because if the funding wasn't there to support it, or you couldn't quite make it happen at that point in time, or the person left, yeah, and yeah, left and of course, no one knows how to pick yeah, it up. Yeah, and like there's no, there's no, you know, the knowledge transfer, like so much, it goes with the person, right? So, mm. um, yeah, I, I found, I find like the transient element that you're touching on within academia quite hard. Um, I know that's something quite a lot of my friends that stayed in found find hard too and it's one of the things that a lot of people choose to leave because of because it's really hard to know that I've not got the stability or a permanent position Mm. that's not something that's addressed by joining a startup (laughs) yeah I was gonna say like I guess they don't you don't really get the um the flexibility well you get the flexibility but you don't necessarily get the um the kind of stability that you would in academia but you don't necessarily get that in a startup either no you definitely don't (laughs) so how did you go from working for several startups and in software development to becoming a CEO. Mm, yeah, so when I obviously started in startups, um, I was in small, there were small companies and I was doing a lot. So I was doing like from the coding all the way up to the operations side, you know, setting up projects, setting up how we'd handle data appropriately if it was like super sensitive. Um, so I was learning like a huge amount across much more than just like the area of technical expertise. Um, and of course, as the companies grow, um, I developed with it and ended up in, in a chief operating officer position. Um, was managing like a larger-ish team, um, which was actually remote. So it was like a lot of remote workers across the world, um, which was challenging, but again, really fun. Um, and you know, as I was doing that, and I was working in still in deep tech because it was like. AI or natural language processing um, or behavioral science, like depending which projects it was on, it was quite quite um, diverse still. But all of it was was deep tech, like cutting edge of technology. And there was a point where I was like, I really miss quantum. Like this is challenging for sure, but you know, it's not quite quantum. Um, so I actually started looking um, to see, because I could see the quantum space becoming more commercial around me. And I was like, how can I like, get back into that and kind of use what I've learned in the last few years here, as well as my quantum and like mash them together and do something really cool. Um, so I was looking at, at what was available, which at the time was mostly in America, um, at which point I uh, got headhunted by um, OSI, which is an investor in Oxford um, that manages the spin out basically when it spun out. And they said, hey, do you want to chat about this? And would you be interested in doing the CEO position? And again, it was just like, yes, absolutely. I'd originally gone to them and said anything there would be very cool. Um, But they're very good at investing in kind of 
perhaps younger, less experienced CEOs and making sure they put the infrastructure in place to support and develop them. Um, and I think it's it's worked out, you know, obviously incredibly um, for me, but also for the company. It's really good that um, I can both understand the technology and also be able to put that more commercial hat on. And it's such a challenging balance to strike. Um, but I, I don't think that, you know, if you had put a CEO in place that didn't have the appreciation, the understanding and the technical um, head, then you wouldn't have been able to spin that company out. Like we wouldn't have been able to get to where we are because that gap is big. I'm gonna finish off with a question that I ask every guest on our show. So what advice would you give to women and minorities in research who want to work in the tech sector? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's a great question. It's just put yourself out there. Just get on, like, do it, like get on with it. Um, I found by throwing myself into that environment by being super energized and excited about it, um, by showing your capabilities, by showcasing, like, for me, it's all about demonstrating success and seeing success in other people and shouting about success in other people. So build that network. Yeah, I think just like continue to work on self-development, but go for it. You are listening to the Researchers Code podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever podcasting platform you use? Also, if you could give us a rating, that would be really helpful for other people finding us.